Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you that we have this message from you. We ask that you would, through your spirit, apply it to our hearts this morning. Help us to listen to what you have to say to us, corporately as as Orchard Bible Church and, and individually. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this year we got to enjoy the 2020 Olympics in 2021, uh, for reasons we're all familiar with. And 97 years ago, the Summer Olympics were held in Paris. One of the fastest runners in the world at the time, whose nickname was the Flying Scotsman, was favored to win his heat that year in the 100-meter sprint. It was one of the most famous and anticipated events of the Summer Olympics. But he withdrew from the event, and he chose to forego what probably for him would have been an Olympic gold medal. Why would he do such a thing? He qualified for the Olympics with this race in mind. He was favored to win not only his heat, but the event overall. He had trained for years for this event. It was his event. He wasn't injured, so why did he withdraw? 
Well, the runner was a Christian missionary kid named Eric Little, who'd grown up on the Chinese mission field, and his heat was scheduled for Sunday. Little had made up his mind months in advance that he wouldn't run in his scheduled heat on the Sabbath. The Olympic Committee refused to move him to another heat, and many people tried to convince him that it was okay to go ahead and run on a Sunday. Nevertheless, he persisted. It was this story of persistent faithfulness that inspired the 1981 movie that we're all familiar with, Chariots of Fire, which tells the story in detail, including the fact that an American athletic masseuse approached the British Little uh, before his 400-meter race that he was able to run in with a small square of paper that quoted 1 Samuel 2, a line that we just sang this morning, he who honors me, I will honor. We'll see this morning that there were some members of the Thyatiran church who stuck faithfully to their convictions and what they knew to be right. And there were others who didn't. So if you come away from this message this morning with with one thing or with one idea, come away with this idea. That the God of the universe, with eyes like a flame of fire, sees you and will empower you to conquer sin in your life and is with you through every moment. Those points are the points of application in your bulletin at the end. But first, let's start at the beginning. Point one in your outline is the context of the letter. The letter we're reading today is from the risen Jesus Christ to the church at Thyatira the fourth church out of seven to receive special instruction from the Lord himself. Before we can fully appreciate the content of the letter, though, we need to understand a few things about Thyatira and the context in which it was received. This city was a place in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and it had a really good local economy. Their biggest trade was the refinement and sale of something called Chaco Libanon, which is the Latin term or the Latin or Greek term for, uh, it it was an alloy of copper. It might have been copper itself. It might have been brass. It might have been bronze. It's not entirely certain. Um, But it was a hard, valuable red metal. And we'll come back to that material here in a moment. But the thing about this booming local economy in Thyatira was that just about everybody was part of a trade group or a union. And being part of a trade guild was, a, was the way to be connected in this society. They were extremely important to being part of a community. And if you were part of the, the, uh, the brass or copper trade guild, you're, you'd have a joint... Um, events or or meetings with with other trade guilds, and that's how you would be recognized. It was like Greek life on campus. If you're part of that fraternity, there's that fraternity that you're friends with, and if you're not a part of Greek life, like I wasn't, you kind of feel like an outsider. And that's exactly what um, these Christians were feeling. One commentator points out that there were more trade guilds in Thyatira than in any other city in Asia Minor at the time. 
Now, the thing about these trade guilds was they didn't meet at the local Rotary Club. They met at their god's temple. And the main, uh, the main temple for Thyatira was the temple of Apollo Tiramnos. And this was a, a, a basically a version of the god Apollo. These, these gatherings that these trade guilds would have would be feasts at the temple. They would sacrifice meat to Apollo, and then they would take that meat into the dining room, and they would sit around these dining couches, around a large banquet table. And um, It was common practice to recline at table in the ancient world on, on couches. But during these feasts, as part of the religious practices, there would be adult entertainment and temple prostitutes that the worshipers would engage with during dinner on these couches. This put the Christians in Thyatira in an awkward position. In order to be a successful tradesman, you had to be part of a trade guild. But the trade guilds actively worshipped Apollo and had feasts involving sexual immorality. So, of course, the Christians couldn't participate in those trade guild feasts. And as a result, their careers were put in jeopardy. But there was one female church leader who was fairly enterprising, and she had an idea. You know, I bet there's a way that we could still participate without burdening our consciences. Commentators believe this woman, referred to in the letter as Jezebel, taught that it was okay to participate in the feast because... Well, you know, as Christians, we know that Apollo doesn't really exist. He's not a real god. And, you know, it's just kind of made up. So no harm, no foul. We can eat this meat. It has no significance that it was offered, um, you know, to to an entity that doesn't exist. Uh, After all, the Apostle Paul, as as her argument probably went, uh, the Apostle Paul said it was okay for the Corinthians to do this if, uh, you know, if the meat offered to idols didn't bother their conscience and as long as it didn't cause anybody else to stumble and... You know, this is just part of life here in Thyatira, and I think it's okay. That's what commentators think that this Jezebel was, was arguing and teaching. Of course, this, this argument was full of holes. If she did rely on the Apostle Paul's teaching about eating meat offered to idols, that was in a totally different context. In, in Corinth, you had the meat that was being sold in the marketplace that was offered to idols before it was being sold. So out of sight, out of mind, the, the purchasers of that meat weren't, weren't involved in the offering to, um, to the idol. But here, the meat being offered to Apollo was at a trade guild feast. It was part and parcel of, of what they would have been involved in. So not only that, not only were they participating in, in the worship of an idol or in the worship of Apollo... But they were also, they had to witness and hopefully not participate in the sexual immorality that was part of the feasts as well. So it really was not a 1 Corinthians 8 type situation, as Jezebel probably argued it was. But nevertheless, she had gathered a following of people who had grown within the Thyatiran church to the degree that Jesus is very concerned about this. And it it makes it into the scriptures today. One interesting point here. 
she wasn't tempting, Jezebel wasn't tempting people to worship Apollo per se. The idolatry of the Thyatiran, uh, the, the Thyatiran believers who were being tempted away from this, their idolatry was not Apollo. Their idolatry was their career success and being accepted in society. Now that we have some context, let's, let's look at the content of the letter. <clears throat> let's look at what Christ says to his church, as we heard was just read. Look with me at verse 18, where Christ starts out by describing himself to his church. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The first thing Christ says, he's the Son of God. Apollo, if you'll remember your Greek um, mythology, was the son of Zeus, and Zeus was kind of the, the god of gods. So him introducing himself as the son of God is in direct contradiction to Apollo and his relationship to Zeus in the, in the uh, beliefs <clears throat> in Thyatira. It would have immediately struck a chord. It would have been immediately recognizable as, oh, right. Um, <clears throat> Christ then goes on to say he has eyes like a flame of fire. Commentators seem to agree that this imagery, um, and, and pop culture actually agrees with this, uh, still today, the penetrating eyesight of God into all matters, even to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Um, we see in the Lord of the Rings books, um, in, written in the 50s, the great eye wreathed in flame, which sees all. So this idea of eyes of fire penetrating thoughts and intentions persists today. Recall all the way back in Genesis, when Hagar fled from Sarai, Abram's wife, Abraham before his name was Abraham was Abram, before Sarah's name was Sarah, it was Sarai. They had a maidservant, Hagar, The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in the wilderness and told her she would bear a son, Ishmael. And Hagar said, you are the God who sees me. Or you are a God of sight. Nothing's hidden from God. We can make excuses to ourselves and excuses to others that others in polite society will accept. Well, how am I supposed to make a living if I'm not part of this trade guild? You tell me. As it says in Hebrews 4, these excuses don't cut it. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Remember last week's description of the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth as the word of God. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is nowhere to hide from God. And depending on where you are, that's either very comforting or very scary. Lastly, Christ describes himself as one whose feet are like burnished bronze, or, or this Chaco Libanon thing. There was only this Chaco Libanon word, this material, this copper alloy, was only found in Thyatira. It was unique to their location, and that's the word that he uses to describe his feet. 
Now, if Jesus having feet of bronze sounds familiar, then you know your book of Daniel. In Daniel 10, Daniel sees a vision of a man clothed in linen with eyes like flaming torches, similar to here, and arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, very close to what we see here in, in Revelation 2. So what does this mean? Why does he have burnished bronze feet? That doesn't really have a lot of contemporary significance to us. But in, in the ancient worlds, we've heard in the last few weeks, after an army would defeat an enemy, they'd put their foot on the neck of their enemies. And a bronze or solid metal foot would mean decisive victory from which no one could squirm or escape. Furthermore, his feet are made of a red metal, a copper alloy, which may signify that his defeat was rooted in his death and bloodshed and resurrection. Christ's defeat of his enemies is a sure thing. That's what the metallic foot symbol is meant to convey. He has already conquered death, and the fates of evil and sin and Satan are sealed. His hard metal feet are upon their necks, and they will not escape. This powerful victory was achieved through the death. Jesus died on the Roman cross and the blood he shed, as reflected in the ruddy color of the metal. His victory is certain. This is also in Daniel 10 and Psalm 2, where the Messiah will, will rule with a rod of iron and crush enemies with metal feet. So not only would this have been stark imagery on its face, but the Thyatiran church would have been very familiar with Psalm 2 and with Daniel 10. Jesus is saying, I will conquer my enemies. It is a sure thing, and I am the foretold deliverer, the conquering hero. And you can either be conquering with me, as we'll, as we'll hear later, or be under my copper foot. Jesus is the son of the only true God, unlike your Apollos, he says, son of the false god Zeus. Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire, able to see your intentions and behind your actions, and from him no deed or thought is hidden. He knows what you're thinking. He knows you're trying to make an, an excuse. His feet are the, like the bronze that you're so proud of refining there in Thyatira, hard and shining brightly, able to crush his enemies under his feet, a judgment from which no one can escape. That's what Jesus has to say to you. That's a paraphrase of, of that entry. That's what would have been understood as they read that verse. Moving on to verse 19. <clears throat> I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Hey, that's good. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The Thyatiran church is praised right up front for their love, praised for their faith, praised for their service. They're praised for their patient endurance. They're praised for how they're doing even better now than they did when they started. This is the opposite of Ephesus, who started out strong, but then kind of waned in their fervor and love. They abandoned the love they had at first. Here, Thyatira started out well, and they're improving. That's terrific. They're doing really well. But Christ still has a bone to pick, and it's not a small thing. 
Similar to the church at Pergamum, they're struggling with the promotion or permission of idolatry or idol worship in their church. Wrong teachings have been tolerated, not, not adopted. They're not teaching this from their pulpits, as it were. But it's being tolerated. And this, this is enough of a warning. This is enough for a warning to that church from Jesus that Christ will judge and execute justice and give to each person in proportion to their works, as we see in uh, later verses. We already examined what the teaching likely was, how pervasive it probably was to Christians who are looking for a, a justification to be a part of the industry groups, these unions, these trade groups. Jezebel made a colorable argument. That's one that's going to lose. It's a bad argument. But it's one you can make with a straight face. She was wrong. She knew she was wrong. And those who followed her knew the argument was wrong. Everyone knew it was not okay to participate in the worship of Apollo. But they tolerated this Jezebel. By the way, this title of Jezebel, it's probably not her actual name. Uh, it, it's a reference to the Israelite queen of 1 Kings 16 who was the wife of King Ahab. She worshipped Baal, the Canaanite god, and had the prophets of God murdered. She ordered the murder of uh, another, Naboth, who threatened Elijah. She was not a great queen, and, and the parallel here between Ahab's wife, Jezebel, and this influencer in the Thyatiran church was that they both seduced the people of God into idolatry and sexual immorality associated with the worship of Baal. So she'll be punished. Let's, let's look at verses 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who search mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. <clears throat> Look at the words Jesus uses here. This Jezebel will be thrown onto a sickbed. Now, the context has changed the word here, but this is the same word for couch, the dining couch that they would use in the feast. Instead of the couch being used for the worship of Apollo and feasting and sexual immorality, he's saying, I will throw her onto a couch of sickness. This is another picture of if it weren't God speaking, this would be irony. But it's Christ's perfect justice and appropriate parallelism. It's beautiful. It's also worth noting here that this is not the first rebuke that Jezebel has received. We see that uh, Christ says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. She would not have been blindsided by this rebuke or the promised punishment. That's in line with her followers who are kind of, who may have been looking for an excuse and maybe I kind of picture them as hapless people kind of, you know, looking for someone to follow and I guess she said it's okay. I, I don't know. I guess we can do this. Well, they're given a chance to repent and they're the ones who referred, who are referred to as those who commit adultery with her. Whether that's with her or alongside her, uh, is immaterial, but they will, if they do not repent, they'll be thrown into great tribulation, but they have a chance to repent. 
Even those who've attended the feasts and deceived themselves and kind of made excuses, they still have a chance to turn things around. On the other hand, the children of Jezebel, probably a reference to the followers who were championing this teaching and turning around and teaching others, those who are fully committed and card-carrying guild members will be struck dead. They will be punished. This is to the glory of God, both because of his righteous judgment and anger toward idol worship, and because it will be obvious that Jesus sees the hearts of men down to the very intentions. Again, a reference to Jesus' eyes of flaming fire. So if, if you were ever looking for a proof text for the concept that ideas have consequences, this is one of them. It's not okay to dabble in idolatry, to accept the low-carb, light-beer version of, of idol worship because, you know, technically other gods don't really exist. This is a dangerous idea, and it has real consequences. Read with me verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you another burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So here we're turning from the judgment and the uh, pronouncement of woe, as it were, on the followers of Jezebel to back to the encouragement. We We saw them praised for their love and their endurance. Now he's addressing that crowd again. No other burdens are laid by Jesus onto these members of the Thyatiran church who are faithful. First, it's <clears throat> what, what, are the, uh, what does he mean by other burdens? Because he says, I, I will not, hold, I will not uh, lay on you any other burden. So what does he mean by other burdens? So first, it's a, it's a burden to be part of a church that's being persuaded to commit idolatry. It's a burden to see your friends and family members be persuaded away from the following. I mean, some of us have seen this in the last few years. It's extremely painful and burdensome to watch someone you may have known and loved walk away from the faith as you plead with them and consider the consequences of their actions. So I'm sure that's one burden that the Tyrant Church was considering. Second, it's a burden to reject the prosperity of a local economy and a, a career in a trade with a guild. It's a burden to shun that and say, no, they, I can't be a part of that career because in order to be a part of that career, I have to commit idolatry. So I'm not going to do that. And that's a burden. Lastly, it was a burden to bear the mark of being a Christian in first century Asia. Rome was persecuting Christians regularly and openly. As we've heard, uh, Lars taught last week, Rome was viewing Christians as a, a kind of a cultic sect and different enough from Judaism that, that they didn't enjoy the, the exemption that, that Judaism enjoyed from Roman rule, from the Roman law that you had to worship the emperor. So they were actively rejecting the imperial cult and being persecuted as a result of that, which equated to breaking Roman law and 
they endured the stigma that came along with that. So they at least have these three burdens that they're enduring. So Jesus says, I'm not, look, I'm not going to pile on. Uh, you're doing fine. Hold on. Knowing the struggles that they're enduring, he refuses to lay on them any other burdens. And then he encourages them to persevere and says, those who persevere will conquer. Let's look at verses 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Wow, these are major promises. And they're, they're so big, in fact, to, to lead one to be a little bit confused. What does it mean that we'll reign over the nations and that we'll rule them with a rod of iron? That was authority that was given to Jesus. And he even says, even as I've received this authority from my father. So these rewards seem good, um, and they are. They're overwhelming. So what does it mean? So at the very least... There are many different ways that we can think of the Christian life and that people describe it in writing or or teaching. Paul refers to it as a race in in Philippians. Jesus referred to his listeners as as followers, people who followed his teaching, um, as though they were on a journey going going somewhere. And uh, here, the Christian life is pictured as a battle. A battle against the forces of evil, even, even evil within our own flesh. And, and we must conquer our opposition. We must conquer the, the evil of the worldliness in our lives and, and in our own desires. The Bible says in Romans, the one who conquers, uh, or, or that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's this conquering language of warfare. So that's the that's the uh, the context in which this these pictures are shown. We conquer the world in our own lives by refusing its its tantalizing enticements. But we know that these are ultimately empty promises that the world has for us. When we do that, when we reject those and conquer the world. Jesus has rewards for us. And the rewards of conquering are normally what? When you conquer, a, a, in the ancient world, you'd conquer a town, you would get the spoils of war. You would get their wealth. Most times, the people who were conquered became your slaves, which is kind of property in itself, in one sense. Again, not a racial slavery. This was a, a warfare-based Transaction. So just as the evil one is the prince of the power of the air and reigns here on earth, if we conquer the world in our flesh, in our lives, we are promised to share in Christ's reign on the earth. Now, the starkness of the imagery here, the rod of iron smashing earthen pots into pieces, it's in proportion to the opposition that these believers were facing. You know, they were 
facing opposition from Rome. They were facing opposition within their own church. They were facing rejection from the Thyatiran society. They were being ostracized. So I believe it's with this in mind that Jesus reassures them with a strong promise, a big promise, that they will rule with Christ and have authority. It's not just that the opposing forces to them will get what's coming to them, but that they will participate in a strong and decisive administration of justice. The third point in your outline is the consequences of the letter. This is all very nice to know, Alex. Wonderful background on some random church in Turkey in the first century. Good stuff. Looks like they got a B on their report card. What does that mean? Well, I tell you what, I've got three points for you this morning. There are always three points. It would be a crime against rhetoric for two points. And four points is, not, is, is too much. Seven would be way too many. Twelve is out of the picture. So we've got three. There's always three. A, point A. We are seen by Christ's eyes of flaming fire. If you think about it, this is almost a truism. We, we know God is everywhere, and he sees everything, and he's all-powerful. If you know your catechism, he's omnipresent, omniscient, and, and omnipotent. I don't know my catechism. But I want you to experience this, this truth today, that God sees you with his eyes of flaming fire. I want you to experience this as Hagar experienced it in Genesis 16 that I re- referred to before. I kind of gave a, a glimpse there. But Hagar was Sarah's servant, as I mentioned. And Abram and, and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, were promised a child. And it wasn't coming, it wasn't coming. It was no surprise to Sarah that she wasn't getting pregnant because she was an octogenarian at least. So maybe they said, well, Abraham, why don't you go ahead and sleep with, with, with Hagar? Maybe that's how this is supposed to work. I don't know. He didn't give us very much detail. So that's what they did. And after the deed is done, Sarah shockingly sours on Hagar. She doesn't, starts to not like her, maybe because she slept with, his, with her husband. Sarah proceeds to treat her so badly that Hagar flees into the wilderness. Here's the really surprising part about that. Hagar didn't have any promises from God. She was some servant girl, some local The angel of the Lord, which some commentators believe was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, appeared to Hagar. What does he say? You're going to have a baby. You're going to be pregnant. And his name will be Ishmael. And he proceeds to tell her that he won't be a very nice guy. I think he describes her as a wild donkey of a man. Hagar responds by saying, though, not, who are you to tell me what my son is going to be? Who are you to tell me who I'm going to be, what am I going to be pregnant or what my life is going to be like? No, she responds by saying, you are the God who sees me. Truly, here, I have seen him who looks after me. She instantly recognizes 
that God sees her, even in her lowest, most desperate place. Even when she was running away from her life, running away from her master, God has eyes like flaming fire that penetrate all our walls, and he sees you. He sees your affliction, whatever that might be. And he looks after you. Please never forget that. Point B. We are conquerors with rods of iron. We will share in the rule of Christ if we conquer during this life. If we conquer self, if we conquer doubt, unbelief, sin, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, if we persist... Endure, if we hold on, we will share in the reign and rule of Christ. Paul wrote in Romans that we are more than conquerors through Christ. And that's true. We have the power to defeat sin in our lives. And if we do so, we will share in the reign and rule of Christ. So, What does this exactly mean? We're not entirely sure. We don't have a full picture of what it means to share in the reign and rule of Christ or or what his delegated authority to us means specifically. But we have an analog now. And that analog now is that we share in the spread of the gospel. We share in Christ's gospel work today. That, that's not how it had to be. It didn't have to be like that. There could always be a permanent message written in the clouds that communicates the gospel and is you know, visible to everybody in their own language, but that's not how it works. We participate in the spreading of the gospel as individuals. And I think that's probably a pretty decent analog of how we will share in the rule and reign of Christ. Letter C. We are companions of Christ, the morning star. We're we're promised here in verse 28, and I will give him who conquers the morning star. We will always be with Christ. We are promised if the, the morning star if we conquer during this life. And this morning star is a reference to Jesus the Messiah. We will receive Jesus if we persist, if we endure. I don't know if you guys have noticed this about human relationships, but when you love someone really deeply, when you have a really close connection, brother, sister, or spouse, friend, your closeness with that person just doesn't have a full and unrestricted expression. Being one with your spouse is the closest we get. But all close human relationships, there's a barrier there. And there's always this friend, brother, sister, I love you. But there's there's also, in that very expression, there's a hesitance because there's some barrier there that our humanity can't cross. 
But that's not how it is with Jesus. There's nothing you can hide from him, both because he sees everything already, but also because he wants you to share everything with him. He knows you and sees you. And in eternity, we will enjoy perfect relationship with him without boundary. He wants to share in your life. He wants you to share your struggles and your fears and your insecurities with him. But he also wants you to share your victories, your celebrations, and your joys with him. Brother and sister, don't, don't compromise that relationship. Whether it's material success here as it was in Thyatira or something else. Don't run on Sundays, as it were. Persist and insist on a deep and open relationship with God. He who honors me, I will honor, he says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we are beyond privileged to be a part of your community. Pray that you would strengthen us to endure till the end. Give us the recall to remember our, your, your book of Hebrews. One who persists, one who holds fast to Jesus. Teach us how to do that. Strengthen us for that work. Let us not keep anything from you in embarrassment or shame. Let us not cower before you, for you love us. Empower us to hold fast and to be faithful. In your son's name we pray. Amen.